are listening to Shining Star Community Church English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Well, today we've come to the end of our series on the book of Nehemiah. Woot woot, right? How would we expect this to end here? With all, well, all these uh, wonderful things that have happened these past few chapters, I'd expect it to be happy, joyful, successful, festive, and upbeat, right? Because usually at the end of a story, there's a happy ending, and everyone's prancing around saying, you know, God is good and all that stuff. And so for me, all I could think about when I was thinking about a good ending was the Lord of the Rings, naturally especially Return of the King, the ending. Now, I've read the book. I'm not talking about the book ending. The book ending's kind of depressing. I'm talking about the movie ending, okay? Um, but going over the book, I noticed that there was a lot of similarities between Nehemiah and this book. Granted, J.R.R. Tolkien, he did say that a lot of his writing was influenced by the Bible and the Christian narrative. Now, if you've seen the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, worry not. I have all three and the books come by my house. We'll watch together for nine hours, and I'll discuss it at length, okay? Well, near the end of the book, the city of Minas Tirith, this is where the last battle was fought, and there was a lot of destruction that happened, obviously. There was a war, and so the city was beginning to get a little bit more revitalized. The walls that were broken down from the battle were slowly getting restored. The city that was emptied out because people were running for their dear lives would begin to get repopulated. Does this sound familiar? Right? The surrounding area, well, it was getting filled back with trees. Fountains were flowing. There was laughter. Evil had been vanquished. The faithful are rewarded. And Aragorn's reign in the age of men has begun. Such a beautiful story. And although the real story in the book ends much differently than the movie, the way the movie ends, it just seems um, nice and happy, the way that most people want their movies or their books to end. And perhaps right now you're thinking, well, that's the way Nehemiah should end. We've come to the end of Nehemiah, after all. And should it end that way? Should it end happy? I mean, the walls were completed in record time. The people of God were revitalized as well. They've restructured the city and the, the, the life of the city, and the people were doing great. But that's not how Nehemiah ends, actually. We know reality seldom has a pretty, happy-go-lucky, lived happily ever after, uh, lived happily ever, uh, ever after endings. Instead, the Word of God teaches us a lesson here, a lesson that we need to learn from their mistakes. So what's happened though, uh, thus far? From last week's sermon, a lot has happened. Nehemiah had 12 years, spent 12 years in Jerusalem building the walls and acting as a governor, right? Then between chapters 12 and 13, Nehemiah leaves Jerusalem to go back to serve the king of Persia, but we're not exactly sure how long, maybe as little as six months to several years. But here in this chapter, we read that Nehemiah, re he returns, and during his absence, all the people seem to have forgotten everything Nehemiah has taught. Everything that they've learned from the word of God. And so Nehemiah comes back shocked and angry. Are you kidding me? It's like a parent coming back from vacation seeing their child had a party at their house. Right? He's shocked and he's angry. And there's one big truth that we need to learn from this chapter. And you know me, right? There's a lot of little truth underneath that. Is that we need to be ready. We need to be vigilant 
We need to be on the alert. So I want you to turn to your neighbor and look at them and say, be ready. That was convincing. Do you remember that one illustration of the boiling frog? Perhaps you've heard of it. Heard of it. If you place a frog in an already boiling water, it'll immediately jump out, right? However, if you place a frog in cool water and slowly raise the heat to a boil, the frog will boil to death, and you got frog soup. It's gross. The frog could easily jump out, but he won't if he doesn't sense any immediate threat. That's what's happening here today in the people of Nehemiah's time. And honestly, that's what's happening here today in our lives too. Because we, we slowly forget about important things. And we begin, to, we begin to tolerate the changes within our spiritual climate to the point our spirits are threatened. And what do we do? We just remained what? Do we jump out? No. We remain unconcerned. We remain numb. We remain slowly stewing in our spiritual downfall. And I pray against that in the name of Jesus. I pray against that, and I, I pray that we learn from this chapter, and that we recognize what the Lord is saying, that he is waving a big red flag saying, time to wake up, people of EM. Time to wake up, Shining Star. Time to wake up, my children. Time to wake up. The first point within the big truth comes from verses 1 through 9. We must be ready because the enemy of God never rests. Now, here in this section, we read of a guy named Tobiah. Do you, do you guys recall this name, Tobiah? He was the one who opposed Nehemiah from the beginning of building the wall. He was the guy who had that weird animal planet fact that the weight of foxes could somehow force a wall to come crashing down. You know that guy? So this guy who was against Nehemiah and still is against Nehemiah and his people and their God, he somehow, during Nehemiah's absence, gets a place to live in downtown Jerusalem. Not just downtown, but in the temple. So get this. Tobiah, who is not a Jew, he's an Ammonite. Ammonites and Moabites have a history of cruelty towards Israel. God had commanded Israel to remain separate from these wicked people. And yet here we have this Tobiah guy, this Ammonite. And through whatever connections, family connections, somehow arranged a suite of rooms for himself and his family right in the center of the religious community, the temple. Can you imagine that? And after Nehemiah was gone, there was no longer any concern for separation from the wicked like God commanded. This guy, this enemy, this person who opposed the building of the wall, opposed God, opposed the Jewish faith from the beginning. And where is he now? Living in the midst of them, living the center, taking up their residence. Let's apply this to ourselves, shall we? What is it that you allow to remain in your life that may seem benign right now, not that big a deal, but let me say, with enough persistence, enough presence, it'll begin to wear you down. It'll begin to erode your relationship with God and the things of God. Let's be really, let's get really practical here, okay? How many times have you allowed our addiction to Netflix? or Korean dramas, or any other media outlet for that matter, become such a distraction in our lives that we end up sacrificing our scripture reading or prayer time. Any, 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 any uh, honest people here? Okay, I got one there. <laughs> Not only do these things take away physical time away from God, 
but exposes ourselves to the things that will deaden our trust in God's word. You see, when we watch TV or read anything current, it's clear to see how society condones the things in which the Bible clearly condemns, isn't it? It's like the frog coming to a boil. Could it be that right now, because there's such a backlash against conservative Christianity, that it seems smart to just tolerate the things society condones? Here it is. True biblical Christianity is not a banner for tolerance. It's a banner for holiness. Okay? True biblical Christianity is not a banner for doing what he or she pleases, but for what God pleases. That's what Christianity is. I think over time, to be called a Bible-believing Christian or a conservative Christian is equated with being stupid, ignorant, prejudiced, or radicalism. Maybe just as Nehemiah did, it's, it's, it's time for us right now in our lives to clean house. Okay? It's time for us to clean house. Maybe it's time for us to really consider how we've been living and throw out the enemy that has taken in a, a very cushy position at the center of our lives. What is that in your life? Who is that in your life? Maybe that means pornography. Maybe that means unbelief. Maybe that means disobedience towards God. It can mean anything, but it's time today not to celebrate, but to fumigate the comfort of sin out of our lives. Amen? Second point is that if we're not ready, then we'll start neglecting God's work. I think this is something that many of you guys and many of us have experienced or currently are experiencing right now. If you've ever been in a bad financial situation, let me give you a little tip. Wouldn't it be nice to get a little pay raise? Oh, yeah. Can you ever say glory, hallelujah? Right? It would be wonderful to get a little, little bit more, a little bit of a raise. And I think we would all opt for that. Extra pay is always nice. And I'll tell you how to do that. Here's what you have to do. Just stop giving to the Lord. Just stop giving to the Lord. Boom. Automatic raise. Think of all the money you could save through the years. Well, that's exactly what was happening in Jerusalem. They stopped giving. They stopped tithing. They stopped giving the first fruit. Stopped providing for the temple. They just stopped altogether. And so what happened? Well, the temple just kept trudging along. The Levites, they have no provision. So they had to get an outside job. And, and so it became a part-time ministry. And honestly, the people of Jerusalem, they, just, they really didn't care about the well-being of the Levites. They're thinking, well, you know, right now times are hard. Everyone else has to work. Why should the Levites be exempt? But then Nehemiah comes along and he blasts the people and he says this. He goes, what are you doing? Why are the Levites out there farming? In verse 11 he says, why is the house of God forsaken? Why are you neglecting these duties? Remember, the promise the people made in, in chapter 10, they said this. They said, we will not neglect the house of the Lord. In this, they promised to be responsible for all the wood, the offerings, the tithe, and everything else to sustain the ministry of the temple. But as time went on, things began to slip. Things started getting a little bit old. Things started to get a little bit burdensome. The people, they needed money, and God's work, it didn't seem so important anymore. And here's the thing. God is not concerned about the money, Okay? He's not wishing everyone to give 10% so he can maintain his heavenly estate. You think that's why he needs your money or my money? God's concerned with your money because we make our issues with money something to be concerned about. Do you get that? Because it becomes an idol. 
If it was donuts that constantly plagued mankind by becoming idols, then God would probably ask us to tithe donuts. If anyone has issues with giving and always complains about the monetary aspects of giving, it's clear then that money is their central issue. It's an idol that has positioned itself in the center of their hearts. What is money to you? Do you worship it or do you worship with it? Are we giving to the works of the Lord? The thing is, when we do well, man, when you're making good money, you're making bank, and you're prospering, isn't it fun to give? It's great. I'm sure, you, I'm sure you're like the Monopoly guy, just going around giving money. You're like, oh, you need help? I'll give you money. Oh, to the Lord, I'll give money. Absolutely. It is so good and so easy to give, and we give with a cheerful heart too when we're doing well. But in Nehemiah's case, and oftentimes in ours as well, when, it, when giving becomes hard, when giving becomes sacrificial, when giving becomes difficult, the first portion, the giving, the offering gets a lot harder, doesn't it? But still, God says we, ha- we must give faithfully. We must give joyfully. We must give trusting in God's provision. Do you trust in God's provision? Do you trust that you are his child, that he will take care of you? Do you trust that? And I'll admit, you know what? If our church's aim was to just build a massive arena of a church with a multi-million dollar sound system and some amazing lights and acoustics and all that stuff, and but we had no heart for the lost, and we had no desire for true biblical discipleship, then I believe we, the leadership, should be held accountable to you all and to God. However, let me tell you something about our church. Shine Star Community Church is one of the biggest sending missionary churches in the entire region, Korean and non-Korean. Praise the Lord. This church and the vision of the Lord has given us aims to create disciples, grow disciples, and send disciples to make disciples. That's what we're all about here. There is so much work to be done, but it requires yours and my faithfulness, especially in terms of our giving. Will you give? The third point is that we need to be ready by making sure we spend time with God. I get it. We all have work. We all work 40 plus hours a week, and now that my wife is about to enter in residency, I probably won't see her until next year. And to think that we have a Saturday and a Sunday where we can just take time off, do nothing, sleep in, veg out, whatever, take a mini road trip. It just sounds amazing, sounds therapeutic, something that we've been wanting. And here's the thing, God, he's not arguing with you needing rest. But more than physical rest, he's saying, guys, you don't just need physical rest. I get that. I know you need rest. I know you need to sleep. I know you need to close your eyes and count the sheep. But here's something more. More than any physical rest you need, you need me. You need me. The people in verse 17, 18, they were desecrating the Sabbath. This was a direct insult to God. These people may have thought, well, you know what, whatever. It's not important because I just need my rest. No, see, the thing is, God wasn't charging them on that. He wasn't charging saying, oh, yeah, yeah, you need rest. No, the charge was that the people were desecrating God's holiness. They were saying, God, you're not important. You're not worthy of any attention. You're not worthy of worship. You're not worthy of any type of attention in terms of maintaining this place. When we come to church, brothers and sisters, we come to church because we need to worship. 
We worship because we need to. It's why we were made. It replenishes us. It realigns us. We need to commit to the gathering of church. We must commit to the body of Christ and give God worship. And I want to challenge you, every single person here today. It's good to see a few new faces. I want to challenge you all here today to designate a spot within this chapel. And among the seats here, to declare, this is my church. This is where I sit. And this is where I pray. And this is where I will intercede for the people around me. And for this ministry. And for the vision that God has given us. This is my home. This is where I worship. This is where I will sit and stand and be in all and hear the teaching and the preaching of the word of God. We must all understand that God, he claims our time. And we must give him the right of way. Every day we must give God time. But especially on the Lord's Day, you got to ask yourself, is it really the Lord's Day? You get what I'm saying? When you're here today, is it really the Lord's Day? Or is it negotiable still for you? Don't let the water come to a boil. The fourth and the last point is that we need to be ready because God wants us to obey his command of not marrying non-believers. And you're thinking, where did this come from? <laughs> I spoke on this a few weeks back. But this is what was happening here. Because let me tell you, right now the demographic here in, in our EM ministry is pretty diverse. But for the most part, we have a lot of young professionals and those who will be graduating soon from school. This means logically, typically, but not always. Marriage is in our next frame of thought. All the single ladies, where are you at? How many of you guys want to get married? Just a bunch of liars here. Here's the thing. Nehemiah comes back. And what does he hear? Does he hear, praise the Lord, yes, God Almighty? No, what does he hear? He hears the children and the grandchildren of the people he knew long ago speaking in foreign languages. Now, he's not against bilingualism. He's not, he's not worried if you're speaking English or Korean or Conglish or whatever. That's not it. He's hearing foreign languages. Everyone around him is sounding like the pagan nations, the nations that hate God and his people. All because daddy got married to an unbelieving wife or vice versa. In chapter 10, they heard the command to not marry believers, and so it seemed that they understood the command. In fact, they vowed to obey the command, but they did not. So as their children grew up, there was absolutely no distinction between them and the non-believing people around them. Now, why is Nehemiah going crazy over this? Why are we bringing this issue up again? Why, is, why am I talking about this again? Because according to verses 26, 27, marriage, it is a sacred covenant like our covenant with God himself. We have to get that. When we make a covenant with our spouse, our believing spouse, we are making actually a covenant with the Lord. It is a marriage with the Lord. It is a promise, a pact with the Lord, with God himself. It is impossible to enter into that sacred covenant with an unbeliever without compromising our covenant with God. So not only do we need to be vigilant and ready because our enemies may be lurking around us or within us or because we could easily neglect God's work by not giving or the fact that God, he still owns our time, but we need to be ready even in our relationships. Turn to your neighbor and say this, get ready even in your relationships. Now, I don't know about you, if you got a non-believing girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse, let me say this, it doesn't matter. I've had people say, but, it's, but Pastor Dave, love is all that matters. I said, ugh. Now, trust me, you can ask my wife, I am, I am decently romantic, okay? 
it doesn't matter if you love that person. Because your love for that individual can never be and should never be your foundation. You just can't. People's love is fickle. We fall in love and fall out of love, don't we? That's why it's God who first loved us. Not the other way around. If it was up to my love for God, let me say this, I would question my salvation every day. I would question my relationship with the Lord every day. Only God's love is unconditional and steadfast. Marriage is more than coming home to a person who gives you butterflies in your stomach. No, marriage is coming home to a person who, like you, has a passion for Christ, is willing to submit to Christ and seeks his kingdom and all his righteousness. You see, marriage is for the glory of God, not for the glory of your heart. There is much that has happened here during Nehemiah's absence. And it didn't happen overnight, guys. That's the thing. It didn't happen like Nehemiah said, all right, see you guys. I'm gone. And they're like, boom, he's gone. Let's party. It was gradual. It increased. It progressed. How? It was all done. It was all done in the name of tolerance, not holiness. It was done in the name of the good of people rather than the good of God. While we live here in this world, the threat of sin is only an arm's length away. It may seem like we're, tr- like, trying to, like we're trying to be Christians living in the world, but not all the world. But unless we confess to biblical God-fearing distinctives in our lives, the water will only get warmer and warmer and warmer until it starts boiling. That's why we got that membership class, guys. It's not just to say, this is what our church stands for. No, this is what the Bible stands for. This chapter didn't end with a happy ending because, honestly, I believe that there are no such things as true happy endings. I believe that you will never, ever experience the truest happy ending until Christ comes back to reclaim his people. Right now, we're called to be vigilant, called to be ready, and to start living as God's people. Brothers and sisters, it was such a great pleasure and challenge to have gone through the book of Nehemiah for the past six months, six months exactly. And I pray and hope it has truly convicted you and challenged you individually and us corporately as to how we should be living, how we should be working, and how we should be worshiping. But through it all, right now you may, you may feel it's overwhelming because of the sense of urgency. You may feel burdened because of the severity of God's call to the believer. And while God knows that no man is perfect, because we're not, and I certainly am not, no one here can be justifiably holy he has given us the greatest, greatest measure of grace through the atoning sacrifice of his son, Jesus. He says, I know you're not perfect. I know you can't make it. I know you can't do it all. But my son has. This is why Jesus is so important. This is why you and I, we come here before him and we worship Jesus. Because through Jesus, we worship the one who has truly lived up to God's standard. Jesus, by his perfect life, perfect death, and perfect resurrection, we are reconciled to God forever. But until we see him face to face as he is our father, he calls us now, right now, to live as his children. To live in holiness. To live for the glory of God and to live in in deep anticipation for the return of the king. Yeah, I have to say that. Are you ready for the return of the king? Will you live in light of the or the return of the king. 
that the Lord is asking us right now to live as his children, to live as the reclaimed, to live as the forgiven. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can. Let's pray. Father, I love the fact that we can call you Father. For there is nothing distant. For you are near, God. And you love us and you embrace us. And you meet with us when we call upon your name. And Lord, right now, perhaps a lot of us are still feeling distant. Maybe right now a lot of us are still concerned about the things of our lives, whatever it may be. Maybe some of us are refusing to admit those things. And if that's the case, then, well, that water is still boiling. I pray in the name of Jesus that you would allow the light of Christ to shine through the even most darkest corners of our hearts and expose the things, Lord, that are keeping us from you and to bring to light our need, our desperate need for your salvation. Lord, we can't do this alone, and you know that, which is why you've given us your son, Jesus. Pray that we will cling onto him, hold on to him, and his righteous works, and his perfect life, and his sacrifice, and his death, and his resurrection. May we cling onto you, Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Jesus, we worship you, and we thank you that you, in obedience, died for me and for everyone here. And I pray, Lord, that relationships will be made today. God, I pray for fellowships to be restored today. Lord, through it all, I pray that you will be glorified. We thank you. We love you. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to give you guys Another minute, okay, to pray your own prayer. As you prepare for the last song of this service, take a moment. Pray that it will be a moment of clarity, of confession, of repentance, a moment where you can just go before God and say, Lord, this is where I'm at right now. Would you heal me from this? Would you fix this in me, God? Would you... Bring to light whatever it is that, that needs to come out. Father, would you, would you draw near to me right now? Okay? Let's go ahead and pray.